0: Welcome to Profiles. I'm Trish Curlay. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, and writers, and get to know the stories behind their work. Our guest today is Eric Deggins. Eric Deggins is the first full-time television critic for NPR. For nearly 20 years, he also served as television and media critic and in other roles for the Tampa Bay Times. He's the author of the 2012 book, Race Bader, how the media wields dangerous words to divide a nation. A look at how prejudice, racism, and sexism fuel some elements of modern media. An award winning reporter and writer, Deggins was named in 2009 as one of Ebony mag- Magazine's Power 150. He is also a graduate of Indiana University's School of Journalism. Eric Deggins, welcome back to Bloomington and thanks for joining us on Profiles. Yeah,
1: thanks for having me.
0: Let's start by sampling your work as a television critic with NPR. In particular, how you view um, the representation of race and ethnicity in television sitcoms. So let's kick it off by playing a clip. This is you talking about the show Two Broke Girls, which was in fact just renewed for a fifth season on CBS.
1: I was flipping around TV channels one evening and I noticed something amazing there was a glorious absence of black actors playing maids, sassy, streetwise pimps, or bug-eyed buffoons. And then, I saw this.
0: Welcome, everyone. Thanks for coming to very important first official diner meeting.
1: That's Han Lee on CBS's hit comedy, Two Broke Girls. He owns the diner in Brooklyn where the show's sassy heroines just happen to work. And though he's trying to lead a staff meeting... It isn't going very well.
0: Well, this is how I roll. Yeah, short and slow. (laughs) No, I roll fast and furious, Tokyo Drift style.
1: Broken English, socially awkward, mostly asexual. These are the unfortunate qualities which seem to define Han Lee. A collection of stereotypes whose heavy accent is always good for a laugh or two. Why are we still discussing this? TV producers got this memo years ago about black characters. Rarely do we see stereotypical roles such as Beulah the Maid or Rooster, the streetwise black pimp who always helped Beretta out of a jam in the 70s. But Asians and Latinos? Well, they haven't been so lucky.
0: Good question. Why are we still discussing this? (laughs) How is it possible that such blatant examples of racial stereotypes are still so pervasive and popular on
1: television well i'll tell you what's interesting about this particular moment in television like i wrote that book race bader three years ago now And the amount of space that those roles have traveled uh, on network television is quite amazing. Uh, We've had Olivia Pope on Scandal, who was the first first starring role for a black woman on a TV drama in 40 years. And then in just a few years later, we had How to Get Away with Murder, which has Viola Davis playing another strong black woman on a TV drama. We have shows like Empire on Fox centered on a black family that uh, control uh, a music empire. We have Blackish on ABC. We have Fresh Off the Boat, the Asian American Family on ABC. We have Jane the Virgin with three generations of Latinas living in the same house and bouncing off each other in a soap opera inspired story. So what's great is that in that short period of time, it seems like network television has finally sort of gotten religion about uh, how diversity can make TV shows creatively better and also make TV shows more profitable and more um, interesting and compelling to viewers, draw a higher viewership. So I think we're in a very different place now than we were uh, when I wrote that. But what also happens is that there's kind of a reaction to that. And I, I do feel that in some sectors of the TV industry, there are people who feel threatened by this rise in diversity. And there are people who are concerned that they're going to be marginalized after running things for a long time or after seeing characters that look like them and talk like them at the center of everything. And so there's a challenge there. And I also think when you look to cable television and you look to these quality TV shows that we talk about, like Mad Men and Breaking Bad and The Walking Dead and. Uh, Girls uh, on HBO, uh, Game of Thrones on HBO, Uh, other than Walking Dead, most of those shows are are particularly diversity challenged. And there's still a, a level of programming on television where it doesn't feel like it quite reflects the diversity of America. And the challenge is to push the people who are creating TV in that space to be as innovative in dealing with diversity as network television has been.
0: You talk about the Writers Guild of America and the composition of its writers in the guild, which is a labor union for folks who who write for television, film and other media. In 2009, 10% of TV writers and 5% of screenwriters were racial minorities. Has that changed to your knowledge in the six years Um, since that?
1: The numbers have gotten a little better, if I remember. There's a um, group at UCLA in particular that tracks uh, those numbers. There's numbers from the Writers Guild of America, and there's numbers from the Directors Guild of America. Basically, what you're trying to do is get a sense of how many people who are not white are in positions of power in the TV and film industry, and how that might relate to the level of diversity that you see in characters in movies, in specific TV shows. And uh, I think what we've seen in terms of the superstar showrunner, the person who is given the credit for being the artistic vision for a show. So you think Aaron Sorkin in The West Wing, you think uh, Steven Bochco in Hill Street Blues. There's certain Uh, producers who are seen as the guys who came up with the vision for the show and make sure that the show stays consistent to that vision. Very few of those people have been non-white people. Very few of those people have been women. Uh, Now what we see in today's TV universe, we see Shonda Rhimes, a black woman at ABC who is an executive producer on three shows on the same night on ABC that are doing tremendous viewership. That's Grey's Anatomy, Scandal, and How to Get Away with Murder, and she created Two of those shows gray's anatomy and scandal and her protege created the third one so here's a black woman who controls an entire night of television on abc john ridley the screenwriter from 12 years a slave created a show called american crime which is now airing at 10 p.m on thursdays on abc so there is a black male who's been given control of a show and control of the artistic vision of a show uh, blackish on ABC. Anthony Anderson and his executive producer, Kenya Barras, together, they serve as the creative vision on that show. Again, another show that is helmed by people who are not white. And you look at Jane the Virgin, that showrunner is female. Orange is the new black. That showrunner is female. You know, we're getting a lot of innovative programming from people who are not white males. And so uh, the reason we track these numbers is because we want to encourage the industry and be able to also show the industry, look, when there's more diversity in writing and directing, you get more diversity in characterizations, and you also get a wider range of an audience that shows up. Uh, For these shows, and they're more successful. The group at UCLA that also tracks these numbers also tracks the profitability of shows where the ethnicity of the characters roughly translates to the ethnicity of America. And what they found is that shows that reflect the face of America are the most profitable. Uh, And the ones that have less diversity and some of the ones that have more diversity don't necessarily do as well. Now, I think Empire is a show on Fox that will bust a lot of those paradigms uh, because it's a show where the viewership is uh, about 60% black, but it is doing tremendous numbers. I think its finale did over 21, 22 million people, once you count uh, everybody who watched it on DVR and online, uh, which is a tremendous hit uh, in today's uh, broadcast world. So... The paradigm is being rewritten as we talk about it, um, but right now, um, there's not enough diversity in those directing ranks, in those writing ranks, and increasing that diversity is key to increasing diversity in front of the camera.
0: Reality television has not necessarily kept up to pace with what's happening recently (laughs) in regard to dramas and sitcoms, in regard to three-dimensional characters of color. Do you agree with that? I think,
1: um, yeah. I I think reality TV is a game of stereotypes, though. Everyone is stereotyped on reality TV shows because... These are characters that have to be created in a very short space of time. And so the viewer has to essentially be able to turn on a show, see a bunch of people that they have never seen before, and instantly know what kind of person each of those characters are. I say characters in quotes. If you could see me, you'd see me doing air quotes. But characters, uh, they're real people, but they're essentially playing uh, characters on these shows. And the viewer has to instantly know what those characters are. Now, when it comes to white characters, you know, the mainstream of America is familiar enough with the different shades and gradations of white culture that white people don't get as stereotyped by many of these characters because, uh, you know, there's a wider familiarity uh, with how wide-ranging white people can be. But when you have reality shows where there are very few black people on them, and then those black people who are on those shows act in very stereotypical ways, then it reinforces stereotypes in the culture in a way that I think is a lot more damaging. And frankly, I think the most damaging thing about reality TV is that it feeds back to marginalized people a vision of themselves that just encourages further oppression. So women who watch The Bachelor, for example, are fed a whole way of thinking about romance, of thinking about men, of thinking about sex that is corrosive, I think, and not part of a way that you would want anyone to think about those topics if you wanted them to have a healthy relationship with those topics. And so it feeds them this princess fantasy um, that exalts men in a way that I think is, is hurtful, And so that's what I hate about the stereotypes on reality TV. Uh, that's what I think is the most damaging part of it. Uh, not only does it influence the mainstream culture, but it encourages people who are part of those groups to see themselves that way and accept those stereotypes as reality. You know, After all, it is called reality TV, right?
0: <laughs> I'm speaking with Eric Deggins, television and media critic for NPR, author of the book Race Bader, How the Media Wields Dangerous Words to Divide a Nation, and a 1990 graduate of Indiana University's School of Journalism. Here is Eric Deggins on CNN in August 2013, reflecting on the 50th anniversary of the 1963 March on Washington and talking about his book.
1: I close today with a message for you, the viewer. Walking among the crowd Saturday at the commemoration of the March on Washington, I was struck by how many different kinds of people had come together to honor 50 years of civil rights history. So why does some media still find it so hard to help Americans talk to each other across racial lines? I'm convinced one aggravating factor is media outlets that profit by playing off prejudice and encouraging people's fears about race difference. I even wrote a book about this called Race Bader, How the Media Wields Dangerous Words to Divide a Nation. It's part of a syndrome I call the tyranny of the broad niche. That's what happens when media outlets court the biggest part of a splintering audience at the expense of other groups. And there may be only one cure, changing the audience itself. Now, there's some pretty simple guidelines for positive conversations on these issues, recognizing that no one person or group owns this discussion, avoiding insults and belittling people, understanding that talking about race doesn't equal racism, and accepting that we all fall prey to prejudice sometimes, and that doesn't necessarily make you a bigot. Watching anti-abortion activists hold signs peacefully right next to immigration reform protesters at Saturday's march, I got the feeling the crowd there already learned these lessons. And the truth is, in today's media environment, you have more power than ever. You can reject outlets focused on harmful, destructive arguments and embrace accurate, fair discussions. No viewership, no readership equals no profits. And suddenly, that kind of programming disappears. Now maybe, just maybe, It's time for the audience to help save media from itself you
0: graduated from iu indiana university 25 years ago oh my
1: god don't worry about <laughs> <me. laughs>
0: when you were a student what did you think your career as a journalist was going to look like
1: oh man nothing like this as i had said before we started talking i had i had never even visited uh the radio station <laughs> until i was a radio professional but yeah i saw myself with a career in print this the journalism school at indiana university back then was uh, really good at preparing you for uh, a career in newspapers. And I think my goal was to become an arts critic with a national voice. So uh, I was going to work my way up. I was going to start out getting jobs in newspapers because that was a, a steady source of income, and it was a job where you could learn the basics of journalism and writing And then sort of decide where you wanted to take your career. So my ultimate goal would have been to be, you know, the the rock critic at the New York Times or the Washington Post or uh, write for magazines like uh, Rolling Stone and even, believe it or not, Playboy had great music coverage back when when I was here. But, you know, journalism shifted and the newspaper industry shifted. And suddenly, in the middle of my career, those jobs at those big newspapers didn't look Uh, Quite as appealing to me as they once did Uh, I had a family and I needed to live somewhere where um, My family would be uh, taken care of and where my family wanted to live and I wound up working at the Tampa Bay Times It was known as the St. Petersburg Times then a really strong regional newspaper and then I realized that there were more opportunities in other kinds of media. So uh, as you heard, you know, I uh, did a guest hosting stint on CNN when they were between media critics. I, and I did a lot of freelance work for NPR that eventually sort of uh, became a job offer to move there full time. And now I feel that I'm kind of a content creator who uh, pulls together these ideas about how media works, how society works, and then I leverage them across a lot of different media platforms. So I create radio stories, I create uh, stories that may go on NPR.org. I do freelance work where I may do print uh, things. I have a piece on David Letterman coming up in Indianapolis Monthly, believe it or not. So it's become much more a, a, a game journalism has where you, ha- you may have one job that is your primary job description, but you also leverage that expertise and that material into other platforms that support uh, the main job. And, and even coming here, I'm, uh, I'm here in town to speak to students and, and, and give a lecture, even that can support the mission of your primary job, which is to let people know the content that you're creating. My job is to let people know the content I'm creating at npr.org and on NPR.
0: Talk a bit about the relationship you see between your role as a television commentator on NPR and your interest in issues of race.
1: Well, you know, I feel... Like any arts critic worth his salt, I think, I feel that how we entertain ourselves and what we choose to, in, to entertain ourselves tells us a lot about society. We can learn a lot about ourselves by taking a look at what we find dramatically compelling, what we find offensive, what we find humorous, uh, what we find emotionally moving. And those things change with the times. Those things change with how society changes. So uh, in a way, I sort of feel like I'm a social archeologist and I'm trying to sift through all of this material and get a sense of, Uh, Where we are on issues of race, where we are on issues of assimilation, where we are on issues of segregation, where we are on issues of sexism and gender identity, all of these things, any subject that you can think of that affects society and the wider world, it can be found, a meaning can be found inside the television that we consume, and that's my ultimate goal. I, I love it when I'm able to look at How people react to a TV show or a storyline or a character or progression and link that to the real world and how we're reacting to these real issues.
0: Your book is called Race Bader, which is a term you say was coined by the conservative media to describe a person who uses racial tensions to arouse the passion and ire of a particular demographic. And you go on to say that even as the election of the first black president forces us all to reevaluate how we think about race, gender, culture, and class lines, some areas of modern media are working hard to push the same old buttons of conflict and division for new purposes. What are those new purposes?
1: Well, ultimately, if you're a media outlet, your goal is to develop a strong audience that is bound to you and does not want to consume the material that's featured on your competitors' platforms. So if you're Fox News, the goal is to draw a loyal audience that sticks with your programming and doesn't watch MSNBC or watch CNN. And one way in which Fox News, which I uh, have criticized uh, a lot in the book and I and I talk about during my talks, one way in which they do that is they try to reflect the worldview of the target audience, the people uh, who the channel's aimed at. And that's basically middle-aged, politically conservative uh, white males. And so that group, if you look at polling, if you look at studies, have a certain view of diversity issues. For example, The Brookings Institution did a study a while ago that found that 46% of the people they polled just in in general believe that white people are as likely to be discriminated against because of their race as people of color. But when you look at people who watch Fox News, people who say they watch Fox News, that percentage goes up to 70%, right? So that's an audience that is resistant to the idea of um, systemic racism, of persistent Institutional prejudice, and so the pundit shows that they feature the news uh, reports that they fe- feature, and in particular, uh, when they devote a lot of resources to doing a, a, a long report or doing you know something significant in reporting, they're going to reflect the worldview of that target audience because the goal is to pull that audience in. Keep them loyal to Fox News. And and Fox News' message isn't just that they're better at covering news. Their message is you can't trust our competitors. You know, CNN and NBC and CBS, they're liberally biased. They're going to tell you um, something that's not necessarily completely true, whereas you can come to Fox News and get the quote-unquote truth. And uh, there are different media platforms that give different messages based on their target audience, right? So Lifetime, for example, their target audience is middle-aged women. So they'll present a range of material made for TV movies, series, that speak to that audience. Comedy Central's target audience is college-age males. So they'll present material... That, that speaks to that audience. But when you're doing that kind of demographic targeting in a news environment, then you're talking about shading how you interpret actual news reporting, which is supposed to be fair, it's supposed to be unbiased, it's supposed to try and defeat stereotypes, not encourage them. And so I think that's where you run into problems with ideologically focused news outlets. And I pick Fox News in general because I think, because of their political positioning, They've been aggressive in sort of talking about race in a way that I think isn't fair. And I also uh, speak about them because I think they're more advanced. They're very sophisticated in how they do it in a way that, that uh, m- many other media outlets just can't match.
0: Later on in the interview, we're gonna ta- I want to ask you specifically about Fox News in, sure. in some detail. You write this book is an attempt to decode the ways media outlets profit by segmenting Americans, which you call the tyranny of the broad niche. And you just spoke about it. this focus on segmenting and niche programming in television. This is a big focus of your book. So what do you mean when you say that, and it was in the clip as well, I believe, the tyranny of the broad niche? What do you mean by that?
1: Right. So we're at a point now in media where it's very hard to draw sort of the kind of broad audiences that we once saw for television, say, 20 years ago it really takes a super bowl or you know the oscars or even you know it takes something live and you know annual and a huge event to draw the kind of audiences that we uh, used to see much more regularly 20 years ago so the name of the game in television and in media right now is to draw the biggest slice of an audience there's no way you're going to get everybody Because there's too many, there's too much competition, and also because people expect media that is focused on their desires and their preferences to a degree that they never have before. It used to be when, you know, when I was a kid and I was watching CBS on Saturdays, you know, I'd sit through, you know, I don't know, uh, I'm I'm gonna make this up, I'm sure the scheduling's wrong, but I would sit through All in the Family to get to Carol Burnett Show, or I'd sit through Carol Burnett to get to Gunsmoke. You know, there's a show I wanted to see, and I might sit through something I didn't wanna see to see the show that I wanted to see. People don't have patience for that anymore because the technology exists to see exactly what you want, exactly when you want, exactly where you want, right? So now, media outlets have to serve their audiences much more completely than they ever have before, and they have to figure out how to keep those audiences coming back and coming back and coming back. And so what happens is, if you can find a broad niche, if you can serve middle-aged white males, and really cater to them in a way that they're very supportive of you, and if that's an audience that advertisers are also interested in, then you can make a pretty good living as a media outlet without having to worry very much about people who are not middle-aged white males. Right? We also see this happen with youth programming. Right. One reason why, you know, The Simpsons is still on the air and Family Guy is still on the air at Fox is that for a long time, those shows have been very good at attracting uh, wealthy viewers and young viewers uh, in a way that other Fox shows haven't. And so even though when you look at their overall ratings you know, they might not be uh, particularly distinguished. If you look at their ratings amongst uh, viewers 18 to 34, and viewers 18 to 49, and especially males in those demographics, um, they are comedies that draw, some, they, they used to be comedies that drew some of the biggest numbers in those categories. I haven't looked in, at the numbers in a few years. But that's why they would survive, even though if you looked at their general ratings and say, wow, you know, they're getting ratings that are close to shows that have been canceled. so. What happens is the tastes of that broad niche wind up affecting everything that's on a channel and even channels that might want to compete with that channel. Uh, So we see it happen in the the bend towards youth programming. Uh, We've seen it happen with the bend towards uh, white audiences. But now we have the show Empire on Fox. And the reason why it is super successful is because it draws a huge number of black viewers. As I said before, um, last time I looked, 60% of its audience was African American. And that has made the difference between the show being a good show in terms of its performance with viewers to it being a blockbuster hit. And so now everybody in broadcast is saying, if I put on a show that doesn't (laughs) repel white viewers and that black people really like, I could have a monster hit. <laughs> so guess what we're gonna see? We probably won't see it, we'll see a little bit of it in the fall, but we'll definitely see it uh, a year and a half from now, because it takes about that long to develop shows. But we'll see a bunch of people trying to cash in on that idea that if they create a show that draws black viewers, and also draws some white viewers, that they can really be successful. And But if you're not uh, someone who shares that sensibility, that cultural sensibility, and you're not interested in that cultural sensibility, then you might feel left out. Uh, and and, and the, the twist here is that that has more often happened to audiences of color and viewers of color, but we may be entering a period of network television where the reverse happens. And there's a lot of shows engineered to try and capture um, that black audience in a way that people who are not uh, that interested in black culture may find, you know, that they're not interested in.
0: If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Eric Deggins, television and media critic for NPR and author of the book Race Bader, How the Media Wields Dangerous Words to Divide a Nation. I hinted earlier that we're going to talk about Fox News Uh in some detail, (laughs) and much of your book, uh, Ray Spader, is a critique of of cable news, namely the Fox News channel, which is- um, I do also
1: criticize MSNBC. I will will point that Uh, out. I I criticize Al Sharpton, and I criticize MSNBC. uh,
0: Yes, you do, and I want to raise that as well. Uh, Fox News is the conservative media outlet, which has more than twice the number of primetime viewers of MSNBC. You write, For many consumers of television news, cable news channels are morphing before their eyes from reporting vehicles to political punditry operations. And what does that do to the notion of an objective truth? You're clearly concerned about what you view as a blurring of the lines between uh, traditional unbiased journalism and opinion making as expressed through cable news uh, channels. Um, Let's talk about Roger Ailes, president of the Fox News Channel. He was hired by Rupert Murdoch in 1996 to create the channel. Murdoch is the billionaire owner of News Corporation, which is the world's second largest media conglomerate. A little background about Roger Ailes. Before he was hired to develop Fox News, Roger Ailes was a media consultant, and you write about this in your book, to three Republican presidents, including Richard Nixon beginning in 1968,
1: mm-hmm. Ronald
0: Reagan, and George H.W. Bush. Uh, you say that what's notable about Ailes's tenure as a political consultant is how many of his employers, those three presidents or to be presidents, used fear of black people and controversial racial issues to win support among white voters in tough elections. It seems as if you're saying that the Fox News Channel's approach to race and conflict is a direct reflection of Roger Ailes' election-winning political strategies.
1: Yeah, yeah, I'm definitely saying that. And and Ailes... I, I mean, Fox News is a reflection of Ailes in its entirety. <laughs> I mean, that in so many ways, that channel is Roger Ailes and his perspective on how to mobilize a crowd, an audience, sort of poured out in, in the cable news world. In terms of who he consulted with in his political career, you think about Richard Nixon. At the time that he uh, worked with Nixon, um, Nixon was running for president at a time after Democrats had signed historic civil rights legislation and had angered a lot of longtime Democrats in the South. And so we saw the birth of this Southern strategy, as it was known, where uh, candidates, Republican candidates would go into the South and promise uh, to be uh, less supportive of civil rights and sympathize with the Southerners who felt aggrieved in the civil rights legislation as a way to sort of win their support. And then um, you flash forward uh, a little bit of time and you get to uh, Ronald Reagan, who you know gave speeches talking about welfare queens, black women who uh, were taking advantage of the public assistance system unfairly to get all of this money without working and having all these babies that they didn't take care of and driving a Cadillac or whatever. You know, stories that you know may have hinged on one person who successfully s- stole a few thousand dollars from welfare, but um, no sense that there were like legions of people doing this. And then flash forward a little further, and you get to George H. W. Bush, who had an infamous, well, his campaign didn't have the ad. A group that was supportive of his political campaign actually put the ad together. But basically there's a sense that these campaigns found issues involving race that white voters would feel aggrieved by or unfairly treated by, somehow discriminated by, and then they would sympathize with those feelings in order to get uh, support. And I feel as if you can look at how Fox News talks about uh, the Trayvon Martin killing, talks about the death of Eric Garner, talks about the idea of systemic institutionalized prejudice inside how our, our cities are policed or inside how people get jobs or inside how education works, the resistance to that notion, uh, you, can, you can see the same dynamic. They're uh, sympathizing with that 70% of their audience. Uh, who believes that white people are just as likely to be discriminated against as people of color, that we generally have a level playing field in this country, and that if there is any kind of prejudice or stereotyping or racism, it is episodic and it is about specific issues. To me, that's, that's one of the big questions facing America right now, is do we sort of go all the way in rooting out the systemic inequality in our system? Or do we sort of look at superficial indicators and accept at everything's level and, 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 and yet allow this sort of subtext of uh, white supremacy to continue? And so I, I think, you know, Fox News is the embodiment of this idea of sort of sympathizing with that perspective on race that uh, a lot of people of color don't share and turning that into uh, punditry, especially, turning that into... Uh, Sean Hannity's show, turning that into Bill O'Reilly's show. You know, having Megyn Kelly on the air insisting that Santa Claus is white. And, you know, it's just, you know, defending the status quo of sort of white racial supremacy in surprising ways.
0: What role can the media play in your view? to really address those issues of systemic
1: institutional racism? Well, there's a lot of different ways. One way, of course, is reporting that sort of reveals this stuff. Uh, We can look at many different kinds of ways of measuring the success of a group in society. We can look at education levels. We can look at income levels. We can look at the ability for families to retain their wealth. We can look at housing rates. We can look at education. We can look at infant mortality rates. I mean, infant mortality rates in this country have been cut tremendously in the last few decades, but the infant mortality rates for black people are still twice the rate for white people, even though they're low for both groups. How does that happen? <laughs> how, how, do you, how do you decrease infant mortality, but you still have a situation where one much smaller group of people their kids uh, die as infants at twice twice the rate of this larger group. So once you look at all those indices and you see that people of color and black people in particular do worse in every one of those in terms of income levels, earning 75 cents for every dollar a white person does, you know, you have to say to yourself there's something else going on here. If, if everybody's equal and everybody has an equal chance of success in America, you, It's impossible to have a situation where you look at all these different indices and one group of people is doing worse than every one of them. Uh, Something systemic is going on that needs to be rooted out, and I think we're at a point in American society where those answers are complex. It's not simple anymore. We don't just have a law that says that black people can't live in nice parts of town. We don't just have a law that says that black people can't vote, or that black people can't have jobs that pay well, or um, black people can't be respected in society. That th- that kind of obvious oppression is uh, has been dismantled. Uh, but there is something else going on that is keeping uh, marginalized groups from really accessing all of the advantages that the society has to offer. And I feel like we're sort of halfway there, 60% there, and we just have to find the will to look at these deeper questions that require more effort and that require more complex understanding about how race works in America. I mean, if you have a situation where government testers can change the name on a resume and affect how employers respond to it, if they put a name on it that quote-unquote sounds black, It gets fewer callbacks. All the information on it is the same. The only thing that's different is the name and the assumption that the person who receives the resume is making about the race of the person who submitted it. And so that tells you right away that there are people making instant snap judgments about potential job candidates uh, based on their perception of what their race is. And so I'm convinced that there are things going on in media that encourage those snap judgments. And I'm devoted to at least trying to discuss that stuff, because one of the things we know from studies and polls that, that look at this is that if you push people to consider these ideas consciously, rather than let them just react, uh, then you're more likely to find that they will reject unfairness, but you've got to get people to think about it, and you've got to get them to really face it.
0: You talk about Tally Mendelberg, who's an academic, and she wrote a book called The Race Card. Um, And in it, she says that political messages containing racist language work best when the message isn't obvious, when it's implicit rather than explicit. um, So that voters can react to an idea rooted in prejudice without their conscious minds stepping in to reject the overt racism. You wrote about this implicit racism and bias in your book. So can you give us some very specific examples of how it shows up in cable news, Um uh, I'm sure it's easier to do that from the right side of the political (laughs) spectrum from Fox News. But I'm also curious about some examples that maybe come up through MSNBC and the left-leaning media.
1: Well, you know, this is something I do run into um, regularly where people will say, you know, you're very critical of conservative uh, media outlets and where's your word uh, for what the liberals do? And one thing I would say is that, you know, when when I'm talking about issues of race and stereotyping and prejudice and institutional racism and stuff like that, liberal media outlets believe in institutional racism. They believe in institutional prejudice. So, you know, finding examples where they're, you know, uh, perpetuating stereotypes, I think is more difficult because their mission, the kind of viewer they're trying to draw, the message they're putting out, is about a whole different set of issues and speaking to their audience in a different way. So so I, I think conservative media outlets tend to be more resistant to this idea of institutional racism and prejudice in important ways. Now, I guess you could look at MSNBC and say, was it difficult for MSNBC to imagine a world where the shooting of Michael Brown might have been in self defense but it might have happened in a context where there was a really unfair policing system aimed at black people you know are any of these ideologically focused media outlets equipped to come to these complex situations involving race and society and decode them in a way that's fair to both sides that Is the problem. When you have MSNBC, and I talk about this in my book, when you have MSNBC where one of their major anchors is Al Sharpton, the guy who is also the spokesman for Trayvon Martin's family, while that family is trying to pressure Florida into prosecuting George Zimmerman for murder, even if you think Al Sharpton is on the right side of that issue in that instance, that creates a conflict of interest that is unavoidable. And it's one that makes it that much harder for that media outlet to come to a situation of complexity and try to describe that complexity in a way that is fair and fully fleshed out, right? So I guess that's the criticism that I would levy that could apply to the left and to the right equally is that we are entering a time in America where these situations are very complex. And so you can have a situation where a crime occurs, and maybe the police are justified in what they're doing, but it happens in a context where there's a lot of unfairness going on. Or maybe the reverse happens, and you have a police department that generally handles race issues well, but there's one instance where somebody made a mistake or somebody did something wrong, and uh, the police department didn't handle it well. I mean... As I said, we're beyond the more obvious things now, and we're getting to very complex issues. Um, if a kid is playing in a park with a toy that looks like a gun, and a cop pulls up and two seconds later shoots and kills that kid, I'm talking about Tamir Rice in Cleveland, you know, how do you look at that situation in a way that's fair to everybody? and make sure that uh, the community and the wider world gets an accurate picture of what happened there and an accurate picture of maybe what needs to be worked on. That's the challenge that we all face. And I think these ideologically focused news outlets that are focused on pulling in an audience by putting a specific message out there, they can sometimes make that that, uh, necessarily complex discussion very, very hard to get to because they're about pushing emotional buttons so let me
0: me ask you about msnbc so so msnbc as you say um does a better job at addressing institutional racism implicit bias and yet they are also guilty as foxes of focusing on a very segmented niche market and so how can any media outlet be successful Um, And we're talking about dollars, bottom line. Be successful at really addressing institutional racism and the complexity of those issues while at the same time expanding beyond a niche, expanding to a broader audience. How do they maintain their appeal? and their money-making potential while at the same time being fair in regard to the the accuracy of the reporting?
1: Well, you know, there's a lot of different niches out there, and there's a lot of different ways to appeal to them. So uh, MSNBC and Fox are appealing to their niche audiences uh, through political ideas. But there's a way to appeal to a niche audience by saying, we're the place you can go uh, for accurate, fair reporting. Uh, We're the place you can go to... Uh, that will cut through the complexity of this stuff and try to be fair to both sides. Now, that has been a difficult middle ground for cable television uh, because of the kind of audience that watches cable news regularly. But that doesn't mean that that's not uh, a winning focus for documentary films or for public radio or for you know television documentaries. You know, there's lots of different media platforms, and each of them have niche audiences uh, that different providers are trying to reach. So I think part of it is figuring out a way to develop a news brand that is that also supports news values, right? How do you develop a news brand that pulls in that broad niche that you need while also upholding... Uh, The core values of journalism, which is to be accurate and to be fair. I don't don't really like using the word unbiased because I don't think anyone is unbiased. And I also think that every media outlet is biased towards turning a profit, (laughs) Mm -hmm. paying its uh, employees, having an impact in the world. And, and doing what it views as quality work. So, you know, everybody goes into a news story with a set of biases. The question is, are those biases that support quality work, or are those biases that make it harder to get to quality work? And, uh, you know, my goal as a media critic is to try and find these news outlets that may be employing biases that make quality work difficult, and talk about that, and push them to do something different. I also talk about in my book about how MSNBC uh, regularly featured Pat Buchanan as a commentator. And this is a a, a conservative commentator um, who had well-established connections to white supremacists you know he was friendly to them would have him would talk to them on radio shows and you know wrote these books that had um you know some very basically wrote books that that tried to make the case that america's increasing diversity was threatening its future and you know i remember in particular cornering the president of msnbc at a party and saying you know if you guys are developing yourselves as a liberal voice you know here is a guy who stands for everything that MSNBC doesn't stand for, and I, I can't understand why you're featuring him. <laughs> and 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 I can't you know I can't understand why you would give a national platform to someone who's trying to make the case that making America more diverse makes it less uh, of a nation, and that the ideal version of America is is, is plucked from the 1950s when black people couldn't even vote, <laughs> you know, and. Uh, and you know, you know, back then I think it was 2010. Got a lot of pushback from him. No, you know, you know, we we may disagree with Pat Buchanan or a lot of our commentators may disagree with Pat Buchanan, but he has a he, he has a point to make. And then a few years later, when a book came out that um, really made those points in a way that you could not ignore, they dropped him. So. Part of my role is to try and identify those things and say, hey, you know, does this really make sense? Does this get you to quality journalism? Does this get you to quality commentating? Believe it or not, um, there's a way to be a pundit that also upholds journalism values. And just because you're expressing opinion, that doesn't mean you're free from uh, the expectation that the facts you present will be accurate and that your take on the issue will be fair and that you will give the other side you know, their are fair hearing in your work as well. And, and, you know, one of the things I tried to do in my book was go to people. I asked Bill O'Reilly to talk to me. I went to Tucker Carlson and interviewed him at length. I went to Andrew Breitbart when he was alive, a, a well-known conservative blogger, and I asked him to tell me his take on the issues. I, I went to the president of MSNBC and I asked him about Al Sharpton and I asked him about Uh, how he was featuring people on his channel. And I tried to feature their points of view uh, as fairly as I could and still make my points. And, you know, that's another thing that gets lost sometimes when you're trying to attract a niche audience is giving the other side their fair uh, hearing as well. So there's a lot to talk about here and consider when you talk about how news outlets in particular are drawing these these niche audiences and what they're doing uh, to try to appeal to them.
0: What about the news... CBS, ABC, NBC, what role could they play?
1: Well, what's interesting... do they play? Yeah, well, they definitely play a role. I mean, what people don't realize is that the evening newscasts on the uh, big three networks still draw the biggest TV audience for news anywhere, bigger than the cable networks, bigger than anywhere else you want to think of. It's diminished. It's very diminished. Uh, I, I guess we're talking 18 or 19 million now. Uh, between the three, but it's still a huge audience that shows up at 6.30 Eastern Standard every day uh, to hear what the news of the day is. And so what's happened, though, is that these newscasts have become a little more niche than they used to be. So CBS has become really focused on hard news. They want to be the best at sort of the traditional news model, but with a modern... With, with modern capabilities and a modern storytelling style, right? And they do that very well. And they're, the audience for that newscast has been growing. I think Sc- Scott Pelley does a great job. If you like traditional news, that's the place to go in in the broadcast networks or to PBS. I think the NewsHour also does a very good traditional newscast. Uh, but if you're talking about commercial television, you know, CBS is is the place to go. ABC has become much more Feature oriented. I wouldn't. Soft news, I guess, I, is, is the term you might apply. They're, they're on the other side of the spectrum from CBS, particularly when Diane Soria was the anchor. Uh, I haven't watched the show much since David Muir took it over. So I'm not sure if he's affected the direction much. But you still get the sense uh, that this is a newscast that is much less hard news focused than CBS is. And then NBC has always kind of been down the middle taking elements from both that soft news approach and that hard news approach to try and create something that might appeal to people who Want to feel like they're getting traditional news but also want the broadcast to be loose enough to have a bit of a personality and do some softer news uh, when it makes sense and So we've seen those news brands kind of go out and differentiate themselves in in uh, recent years and it's made for in evening newscasts that are very distinct in how they approach different issues, and it's given the audience very distinct choices to make in what kind of news they want to consume, which ultimately is is kind of what people want. They want a newscast. That fits their tastes as closely as possible, and those newscasts are being created even at the network level.
0: How would you define what the Daily Show and the Colbert Report do? Like, where do they fall—the entertainment to straight news spectrum—and what kind of impact do these shows have on on news and our consumption of it?
1: Well, you know, I think people who have watched news for a long time have a sense that there is a subtext going on there—that there's an absurdity there—that there. there are things going on that sort of traditional news anchors can't say that they would say if they had the leeway to express their opinion. And so The Daily Show and Colbert and The Nightly Show and even Real Time with Bill Maher, they all take that notion and they expand it and they supersize it. Uh, the Daily Show in particular is about taking what happens, the, the absurdity that happens in the day's news. and making sport of it, but also highlighting how hypocritical our systems can be, how, you know, all all the different weaknesses that we complain about, how closely politics is tied to money, how hypocritical politicians are, how the news media is not uh, able often to be a, a good watchdog because it is so obsessed with other values like chasing celebrity news or Political ideology. They're able to highlight all of these deficiencies and make fun of them in a way that's entertaining and also inform people who don't necessarily know the extent of the hypocrisy or absurdity that's going on in media. Uh, the only thing I worry about, and I know again, you know, I sort of sound like I'm nitpicking, but Ultimately, one of the problems that we have is that people want all their media to be entertaining, including the news. And what The Daily Show and Colbert and The Nightly Show and all these others do is create the expectation that people won't consume or they will resist consuming news unless it's as entertaining as possible. And that, again, winds up uh, distorting the news process a little bit. You know, even John Stewart will say he's not a journalist, and in, in that he doesn't have to be fair. He doesn't have to fully represent the other side of an issue when he's making fun of it. Uh, he wants to be accurate, and he has apologized for major mistakes they may have made in facts in presentations. And part of their brand is wrapped up in their audience watching what they're seeing and thinking that they can trust what they're being told about a situation, but. They don't have the same standards of accuracy and fairness that a traditional news outlet has. And so I always hope people will view them as sort of the dessert at the end of a meal and that they'll actually get a meal of news in other places. John Stewart has also said that you know he feels like people can't understand the jokes he's cracking if they don't know the news. I think that that's a dodge, that that's not true, that there are lots of people – who get most of what they know about the news from the Daily Show and Colbert and Wilmore and these other places. But I think you, you, you can enjoy the jokes even more if you know the news before you come to it, and then you have a sense of what he's telling you about the situation that serves his humor and what he's not telling you, because it, you know, it doesn't it's not funny. You, know?
0: you write that President Obama has been pushed into relative silence on the issue of race. Do you still feel the same way as you did three years ago? Uh, well, you um, know, again, you has know, it changed it's what's, messaging? What's,
1: uh, I, I think what people who uh, follow the Democrats have been surprised by is how, you know, when you usually when you have a lame duck president, that person uh, sort of loses their effectiveness and maybe doesn't speak out as much and maybe isn't as impactful. But. You know, Barack Obama seems to have found a new voice in his lame duckage <laughs> that is more about articulating exactly how he feels about issues. So I think we hear from Barack Obama a little bit more than maybe we, we may have in the, the, you know, certainly before his latest reelection about race. Also race is more on the national table than it was uh, back then. Uh, you can't be a public official. And avoid talking about race when you have Michael Brown, Eric Garner, Tamir Rice, the you know Oklahoma frat. <laughs> you, know, you just you have all of these sort of hot-button, explosive stories connected to race, sort of at the center of the news cycle in a way. Um, that we haven't seen. Uh, I I don't know that we've seen this in a very long time. So in a a way, he winds up having to talk about race more just because of what's happening in the news now. But I also think he feels freer to talk about race now because he's not running for re-election. The leading candidate for the Democratic nomination for president seems to be Hillary Clinton. And, you know, she seems to be trying to establish herself as a separate person who is not necessarily uh, part of Barack Obama's, you know, immediate legacy. So maybe he's a little freer uh, to speak his mind on race than he has been in years past. But I, I do still think that he has not fully revealed how he feels about a lot of these issues because he is still everybody's president. And certainly I understand. The notion that he may want, or those who, who look at these issues, some of them may want to have a president where everyone feels like he's their president and he's not just black people's president or the president of black America or the president who translates black Black America to, to white America. So I, I can certainly understand him picking his shots. Uh, as I say in the book and as I say in public a lot, I cannot wait to read the book that Barack Obama writes about race. Uh, when he gets out of the White House. What do you think
0: he's going to say?
1: I don't know. That's why I can't wait to read it. (laughs) Because I read his first two books, and I feel like he has a very complex and deep understanding about how race works in America that he often does not get to reveal because it's complex. Because if you talk about it, um, it's easy to take pieces of what you say and blow that into something That is not what you intended. And for a long time, he's been in a situation where that could be very damaging to him or very damaging to his political allies. So once he reaches the point where he's like Clinton and like Carter, and his primary responsibility is to his legacy as a public person, then he'll be able to say, I think, express more complex ideas about this. And he's an amazing writer. So I I really hope he does it.
0: I've been speaking today with Eric Deggins. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. This is Trish Curlay for Profiles. Until next time, thanks for listening. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about Profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. James Gray is the producer. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Pashkash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles.